Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Shubo Sengupta, a research scientist at Baidu. Shubo and I met at the Rework Deep Learning Summit in San Francisco last month. I really enjoyed his presentation on systems challenges for deep learning, which did a great job of talking through some of the challenges associated with deep learning at scale. And I'm very grateful to Shubo for agreeing to uh, join me on the podcast to discuss his presentation at the summit uh, and as well as some of his other work. Uh, so welcome, Shubo, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. There were a bunch of really good uh, presentations at the summit, but as a guy who found his way to machine learning and AI, uh, but also spends a lot of time thinking about cloud and big data infrastructure, yours really spoke to me. So I'm looking forward to digging into digging into it. Thanks. Uh, I was a little bit afraid that people won't like it because <laughs> it was a little bit <laughs> off track in some sense. <laughs> no, I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic. Um, yeah. Why don't we start with having you share a little bit about your current role in, at Baidu and some of the things you've done previously and how you got involved in machine learning and AI. Uh, sure. Um, so, as you said, I'm a research scientist at Baidu Silicon Valley AI Lab. And I've been with the lab for the past two and a half years, a little bit more than two and a half years, um, almost since the inception of the lab. Uh, I primarily work in speech and language. Um, I would say more speech than language. Um, over the last two and a half years, I've primarily worked on what is called ASR, which is the piece of technology that takes uh, voice as we speak um, and then converts it into um, text. Um, and we have built um, one of the best uh, English ASR systems and by far the best Mandarin um, ASR systems, which powers um, most of our products in, in China. Um, and currently I'm starting to work on other things like speech synthesis, um, a little bit of language modeling um, to keep in the same domain. Uh, surprisingly enough, I actually did not start in speech. Um, I started my um, career, so to speak, in computer graphics. I was very, very interested um, in special effects in films. And uh, I know this sounds a little bit like a fairy tale, but uh, <laughs> I came to do a PhD in, PhD in computer science to this country because I was so blown away by the films that Pixar was making. So my goal was uh, if I get to grad school, maybe I'll get to work at Pixar at some point. And did you ever work um, at that, Pixar? I did. I spent six months as an intern at Pixar developing some of the early kind of uh, graph GPU-assisted uh, uh, what are called relighting tools. These tools um, give you a fast preview of the film scenes that the lighting designers are using to relight the scene. Okay. Um, and that was an incredible experience. Uh, I still very fondly look back on that experience. I think it was back in 06, that's a while ago. Okay. But it still sticks in memory, and uh, that's kind of what I started um, taking these GPUs that were only used for playing games and starting to use them for doing 
uh, general purpose compute um, because, you know, I thought of graphics as just another computation domain. So mm-hmm. during my PhD, I came up with all the basic parallel algorithms that people use to program GPUs. So I was very lucky that I was very early in this field and made a lot of impact. Um, was wow. the author, yeah, was the author of the first parallel programming library for GPUs. Um, and did a lot of basic algorithm work on on GPUs. So, you know, I've been with GPUs for 12 years now, almost since the early days when there was, uh, they're very, very hard to program for um, general purpose compute. They're primarily used for graphics. Uh, So it's very heartening to see that, you know, um, so many different areas being um, so positively impacted by GPUs. Um, I bet. What was the name of the library that you worked on? Uh, CUDPP, CUDA Data Parallel Primitives Library. Um, it's still around um, and not so much popular anymore because a lot of other libraries like um, Trust, etc., which is uh, good because other people have, I mean, once you leave grad school, it's very hard to uh, keep on contributing code to the to that library because you have other engagements, a full-time job, etc. <laughs> um, but my advisor and his students are still putting in new algorithms into the library, um, so it's it's still around. People still use it, and that library itself has spawned other efforts like um, Trust from NVIDIA and Modern GPU, also from NVIDIA. Um, okay. And I, um, yeah, and I should also shout give a shout out to NVIDIA because NVIDIA had been extremely kind in financial terms and in resources throughout my research career. And I still work closely with NVIDIA, even though I don't work there, but um, I I work with a lot of people at NVIDIA on almost a day-to-day basis. Well, feel free to give that shout out to NVIDIA because in (laughs) fact, I was at a conference uh, last week where a speaker from NVIDIA gave a shout out to this podcast. Um, so. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, NVIDIA has supported my career ever since. I mean, literally my first day of grad school. I mean, my first day, I think my first week in this country, I was at a, a talk at NVIDIA because my advisor was there. One of his students was giving a talk. So uh, it was in 2004. So it's been a while, but the relationship is strong. That's great. Um, so I, you know, what my, my, thinking for this conversation was uh, about, was that we would really dive into the systems types of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but given your expertise in, in GPUs, I have so many questions about kind of GPUs and how um, you know, they're used in ML and AI uh, and yeah, some sure. of the libraries that support them. So at some point, uh, we want to make sure to, to touch on that stuff as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so in your, in your talk, you gave a specific example of a speech recognition that you worked on, um, that had some interesting challenges. Can you talk a little bit about that project or, you know, one of the, you know, a a specific type of project that you can talk about? Yeah, sure. So we have primarily been working on ASR, which is essentially speech recognition for the past two years or so. Um, and when we started, uh, one interesting thing about our lab was we didn't have any speech experts. Uh, we still really don't have any speech experts. Um, so we decided that since we don't have any experts, then we'll have the data kind of guide us. So if we knew 
we kind of, I wouldn't say new, but we were confident that if we could get a lot of data and we knew how to train uh, really deep networks, then we will be able to build, build these systems. So one thing that kind of was a challenge from us, for us, at least in the very beginning, was we had to do a lot of experimentation, and we still do, uh, at scale. To, mm-hmm. to give you an idea, uh, typically a publicly available data set, I think the largest one is 3,000 hours. Um, and we typically do all our experimentation of multiple of tens of thousands of hours. So it's, it's wow. an order of mag- Yeah, so it's an order of magnitude difference. And, and this is hours of speech data that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, hours of speech data, yes. So it's uh, millions of tra- uh, training examples, essentially. So typically around 14 million uh, utterances uh, is about 10,000 hours, if that gives you an idea. Uh, so we have many millions of, of these uh, training examples that we need to train our, our networks on. Um, and we know that in deep learning is a very empirical field. I mean, nobody tells you that this is the network. You have to kind of hunt around and figure out what the network actually is, mm-hmm. um, which means running a lot of experiments. Each of our experiments takes anywhere from 20 to 50 exaflops. So that's like, you know, X is 10 to the power 18. So it's a lot of flops <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for one experiment. And, and typically, you would want to finish an experiment within uh, three weeks is pretty much the, the patience we have. Um, so early on, we, we had to like build the systems that is very, very high performant. And it still is, the in my opinion, from what the numbers I've seen, is the fastest training system in the industry by at least uh, twice as fast as what the best number I've seen um, publicly so far. Um, and we kind of had to invent this thing because there was nothing when we started in, in late 014, around October of 014 is when we started, September, October, that time frame. So we built this thing and we are, we are, I think we still are ahead. And what we are doing is slowly kind of open sourcing parts of this uh, framework. So we want to kind of take our ideas and in some sense infect the field or infect the community with all these high performance computing ideas, which I think are um, very, very appropriate for deep learning. Um, deep learning is this problem that, that um, needs a lot of compute. And that's kind of... What also differentiates our group is not only do we do deep learning, but we do this deep learning through this very high-performance computing approach. And we do all our experimentations at, um, at big scale, which, which kind of separates us. And other people are catching on. I mean, you, you see um, now Google and Facebook and others have a lot of data have kind of come around to um, this kind of high-performance-centric approach. Yeah, and one funny thing, uh, there's an anecdote, and this is true, I like to tell, is when we first um, started training in Mandarin and built a very decent uh, Mandarin ASR system, not the best, but very decent, Mm -hmm. there was not a single Mandarin-speaking person in the group. Wow. <laughs> so this is this is this is this is the power of data. Um, you know, you can look at a training curve and you know that if the training curve is going down, you're doing well. I mean, you don't need to know the language. Right. Uh, right. So, so my colleague Ryan Pranger, um, Ryan and I, Ryan started doing it over. I think the Christmas of 014, when we got our first big Mandarin data set, he started training and immediately we started getting very good results. And That's we were incredible. like, oh my God. <laughs> and essentially the same network architecture does both English and Mandarin, which, you know, kind of validates your, your belief that um, the neural network will learn the, the, 
the you know the differences in the languages by itself. Um, and English and Mandarin are very different languages. I mean, they're 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 so different, and uh, and the fact that the, the almost the same net neural net architecture does both is is still to me, you know, I've been doing this for two and a half years. It's still to me one of the biggest surprises, and kind of validates our approach that uh, that let the data guide you. <laughs> so when you're approaching one of these problems and you're trying to kind of iterate to a neural network architecture, where do you tend to start? Do you start from, um, you know, published research like, you know, Google Net or one of the, um, you know, published uh, uh, network architectures that is kind of known good in a given class of problem? Or, you know, at this point, do you have, you know, your own uh, best practices or proprietary network architectures? How do you tend to approach the, network architecture problem? Yeah, that's a very good question. And speech is a little bit different from identifying images, like you said, an image net, the Google net kind of architectures, which are um, stacks of convolutional networks, because speech has a, a time dependency, right? You can think of a speech as a sequence of audio samples. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, um, a good practice is to choose audio samples that are 10 milliseconds each. So every 10 millisecond, you've got to get an audio sample. But there is a time dependency, right? Because mm-hmm. what you say, you know, at time t equals something is dependent on what you said, t minus something. So the styles of network that we had to train was what are called uh, recurrent nets. And recurrent mm-hmm. nets have been actually around for a long time. But when we first started in 2014, I don't think anybody had used recurrent nets that widely in speech, but we kind of had a gut feeling that um, since recurrent nets uh, captured this time dependency, that's where we should start. Um, so we started off doing very vanilla bidirectional uh, recurrent nets, which actually, uh, bidirectional means they go backward and forward in time. So there's one layer which goes backward, multiple layers which goes backward in time, and other multiple layers which goes forward in time. Um, that's kind of where we started off with. Um, and Auni Hanun, who was, um, who is now back at Stanford, he, he had done some initial work on speech and he was, uh, had played around with new recurrent networks a bit. So he was the proponent of using, uh, recurrent networks. And since then we have evolved. We've used, uh, gated recurrent units, which are a little bit fancier uh, recurrent networks, LSTMs. Um, on top of that, you can use, even fancier uh, constructs like attentional models, which kind of uh, look at capturing some sort of memory um, inside these networks. I mean, these these networks in some sense are capturing memory of what you've uh, said in the past. So yeah, I mean, you kind of look at your problem and then um, there are wide classes of these networks. So uh, convolutional networks kind of capture um, features in kind of an image space, in a 2D space, right? Uh, and these recurrent networks kind of capture um, features in, in, in time dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on where your problem lies, that, that's where you would start. Like, for example, tomorrow, for example, I, I have to, you know, I'm trying to do something in video. Um, where would I start? I would probably start with uh, a recurrent networks as a first guess because video also has a concept of time. Um, so, so that's kind of where you um, start off with, and, and and nothing is actually proprietary. I mean, one good thing about the community is people are very open about uh, sharing architectures. Like all our architectures are are public. I mean, we publish yearly, almost at a yearly cadence, 
what networks we have been using, and they're all like standard known networks. Just the architecture is different, like how they're connected, how many layers, what is the cost function, and so on and so forth. So what's the relationship between the network architecture and the underlying systems that support them? Ah, that's a good question. Um, typically, you know, a um, lot of people, I think, because Google Net and because ImageNet has become such a widely known competition that people focus on these stacks of convolutional nets a lot. Um, recurrent nets, because they go in time, they're a little bit difficult because say you have a really long audio transcript, which means it will be kind of unrolled in time. You can think of it as a for loop. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on how long the audio transcript is, um, you have to kind of unroll that loop in time, which makes it a um, little bit more uh, challenging compared to like convolutional um, networks. So it, it uh, their memory kind of blows up because you have these long utterances that you're uh, transcribing. Um, sometimes your deployment can be a challenge because um, you are doing these small matrix multiplies, which are not very high performant, depending on how you do the um, inference. Inference is when you actually deploy these models. Um, and you're also, uh, and users are also very, very sensitive to latency. So which means you have to do it, like when you're talking to Siri, Siri, for example, you spoke something to Siri and Siri took I don't know, one minute to answer. Obviously, you're not going to be a very happy user. <laughs> <laughs> We've moved on by that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, so you have to think about all these issues when you're doing inference for these kind of recurrent networks. And then uh, very recently, there are network architectures that are incredibly challenging, um, things like WaveNet and ByteNet, which came out of Google DeepMind, uh, uh, and Pixel CNN, Pixel RNN. So what these networks are doing, uh, they're generating uh, one sample uh, at a time, and the sample is at a very fine time granularity, which means they're generating uh, one sample every 61 microsecond, which wow. is basically 16,000. Uh, 61 microsecond is basically one over 16,000, so like a 16 kilohertz audio. So this is used, these networks are used to synthesize to the opposite problem. So given a text, you're synthesizing speech. Um, so the, then you are incredibly um, latency bound. Like you have to generate an audio sample every 61 microseconds, and this uh, entire network is like you know 40 layers deep, 50 layers deep, something like that. Um, so this is actually a, a research frontier. Like, how do you make things like wave nets and byte nets um, synthesize things? Same thing uh, happens with uh, with pictures. Like the Pixel CNN paper, if you look at, I think it was presented last year's ICML. They're, they're synthesizing uh, images one pixel at a time, and to generate each pixel, you have to, you know, you have to do this inference through this deep, really deep network of 40, 50 layers. Uh, which makes this very, very challenging. So from the system side, I think these networks are kind of at the um, uh, at the forefront of um, of difficulty and challenge of, of deploying these kind of networks. Now, having been in the field for so long, does it still amaze you that any of this stuff works? <laughs> uh, oh, on, a, on a daily basis. And I think it's, a, it's an Achilles heel um, in some sense that the interpretability of of these networks is is extremely mm. hard, especially for mm -hmm. speech. I mean, 
um, if you look at some of the um, work that has been that has happened in in the in Google Net kind of world, where you can kind of deconvolve a a layer and kind of say, okay, this layer is uh, detecting like a face. This layer is detecting like a I don't know the chin or something, mm-hmm. because humans we can visually we are very rich. We can look at these patterns visually. Uh, I have no idea how to visualize uh, a recurrent network. So how do you visualize right, an right. Uh, uh, audio form? I mean, I don't know. Right. Uh, like, well, I mean, so because audio has, in some sense, much less in- information compared to like a image. Like, it, it's literally is a picture is a thousand words, right? Right. Um, so in our domain, it, it's almost impossible to gain any sort of interpretability in in the networks we train, which makes our life really hard because we see. I mean, almost every daily basis we see these, uh, you know, some something we see that is like, how did that happen? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's very hard to gain insight into these networks. They're very much a black box, which makes them quite hard. It's incredible to think that this, uh, the neural network is looking at, you know, you know, milliseconds of speech and is able to do anything with it, you know, let yeah, alone yeah. create words and have them be yeah. partially intelligible. Yeah, and it's doing for two languages, which are completely unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do like when we first started Mandarin, people were saying, oh, you need to do explicit tone modeling because Mandarin is a tonal language and uh-huh. all that stuff. Right. And you're like, you know, we are not linguists. We, we are not language experts or speech experts. You're like, no, we won't. We are not going to do it. And we're going to just try kind of the quote unquote brute force method of like feeding it to the neural network and see if the neural network can figure out the tonality of the languages. Mm. And it does. I mean, you know, if you ask me what layer of the neural network is learning these tones, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a, a uh, I had a guest on the show, Pascal Fung, who works on uh, who spent quite a bit of time in her career working on uh, speech, and she quoted I forget the name of the. Uh, researcher who's one of the pioneers in statistical modeling of speech who mm-hmm. said something to the effect of my speech recognition accuracy goes up every time I fire a linguist from my lab or something like that. Yeah, um, that, that's a very popular saying. And, and we kind of jokingly say it inside of our <laughs> groups, <laughs> especially when we first started and we had like no clue what to do whatsoever. <laughs> So your accuracy should be at the top, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but I think that um, as you get, I mean, uh, going from say eighty when we first started, I think we were eighty percent accurate or seventy five percent accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, going from that to ninety five, ninety six percent is actually easier than going from ninety six percent to ninety nine percent. Oh, of course, it, it, it's that famous sigmoid curve, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to do ten x more work to get. I don't know, 1% more better accuracy. Right, right. Uh, because making, um, Andrew Ng gives this really nice example that uh, it's very hard to build systems that are better than humans in accuracy because then you kind of lose sense of like, you know, normally when you develop the systems, you kind of get a sense of why the system is failing. Maybe the system is failing because it can't, because it has background noise or something like that. But uh-huh. once it gets into the range where, the humans will make mistakes, but then you can't judge something that is already better than you because then you don't know what these failure cases are. Right. So, it, so the last 3% or the last 2% is really hard to bridge. And that's kind of where we are now. Hmm. 
and, and it's becoming like increasingly hard. We're making progress, but it's, you know, it's not as rapid of a progress. We are, um, we want to close the gap and I think we can close the gap, but it's going to be incredibly challenging. Mm. Mm. And the flip side is I, I don't think until you get to that 99% accuracy level, you can't really have a technology that kind of gives you the sense of magic, right? You know, right. You know it, it just works. Right. You're not there yet with ASR. Right, right. It's amazing how close we're getting, though. Yeah, yeah. You said a couple of things that I thought were pretty interesting that I'd like to go back to. One was that you were starting to see results that were uh, 2x better than, you know, what were what you were seeing publicly. Um, were those results in terms of accuracy or I think it was training time? That you were, what, what were those? Oh, oh, so those were training times. Training so, times, right. Uh, yeah, our training. So from the very outset, what we have focused on was uh, not just absolute training time, but one, one thing that I learned from NVIDIA while I was at NVIDIA is what is called the speed of light. Um, the speed of light is basically under ideal circumstances, how, what is the fastest you can go? And that typically is if your processor is running at full speed all the time, which obviously doesn't happen. So then what you should aim for is what fraction of a speed of light are you at? Uh, and typically for any real-world application, especially for applications that run for three weeks, uh, if you are at 50% of speed of light, which means you know a GPU has a speed of light of typically around six teraflops if you take a Titan X GPU. Um, so if you can sustain three teraflops, that's actually incredibly good. Um, so instead of focusing on absolute training time, we look at what fraction of speed of light are we? Um, because that's mm. a good measure of efficiency. Right. right? Um, so we targeted 50%. And I just saw, I think, a paper a couple of days back, uh, I believe from Google. It's a very good paper. It's on mixture of experts. And they're, I think, getting around 25% um, efficiency. So, so the field is, in some sense, moving there that people are caring about things like efficiency. Efficiency have been 25% of speed of light, basically. And we have been at 50% of speed of light since at least a year and a half. Um, so in that sense, we have been 2x or more um, ahead of the field. And this is something that we as a group have been trying to kind of evangelize, that um, it's not just important to tell you the absolute number, but also uh, what fraction of speed of light are you? Because otherwise, it's hard to measure how efficient you are. Hmm. Uh, uh, and that, that's a different kind of thinking, I feel. Um, and I think it, um, I actually learned it from NVIDIA when I was at NVIDIA. Because as a game, when, when you're developing these algorithms for games, um, games uh -huh. also have this kind of a hard requirement that you have to generate a frame every 30th of a second. Because typically a game mm -hmm. would be 30 FPS, right? So then you need to do it very, very efficiently. Like a computer game, for example. Right, right. And do you does your team is it reflected in your team composition as well? Do you have more or folks from a systems background than you would typically find doing in an AI research group? Or oh, ab absolutely. So this was also something that is very unique to our group when we first started, um, kind of formulating the lab. Um, Adam Coates and Andrew um, kind of understood that um, the systems would be a really important. Uh, aspect of deep learning. So we have a really deep bench in systems. We don't have a lot of people, uh, but the people we have in our group, uh, I think combined, have like 30, 40 years exper experience in building very, very high performance systems. 
Um, and it's also a unique opportunity because um, there's a group that people can wear different hats, in fact, encouraged to wear different hats. So I come from a GPU background, other people come from GPU background. We learn about speech, about deep learning, about ML, and then ML people and the deep learning who come from the ML or more, more ML deal background, they learn about um, how to build these systems. I mean, you can't just write code um, and you know hope for the best. I mean, you know, depending on what code you write and how you write it or how you architect it, your training run might take two months instead of three weeks. Right, uh, right. And good luck with that. <laughs> mm. um, so it's, it's a very interesting composition of our lab, and I don't think um, uh, it exists anywhere else, but I think um, other people like Google, Facebook, et cetera, they're all seeing the value of this kind of an approach, and they're all kind of ramping up. Um, I mean, the TensorFlow team is incredible, and they're um, they also have a lot of really um, great systems people, and they're, they're, they've kind of realized the value of this as well. It's interesting. I had an opportunity to hear Andrew speak at uh, this conference that I was at last week. Uh, it was a GigaOM AI conference. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he said uh, that was really interesting was that, you know, in Silicon Valley, we've got various established practices for, you know, lots of things, building web apps, building mobile apps, you know, mm-hmm. building uh, backend infrastructures for those kinds of systems. Like even as even uh, in spite of how fast those things are moving, like we have these established, you know, principles and architectures and like, you know, DevOps, we've got a team composition that kind of works. And in AI, we're kind of inventing all that stuff over again. And don't have, um, you know, people, everyone's doing things differently, trying to experiment and figure out what works and what works best. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think the, there is a notion of what an AI product should be, but um, I don't think AI products have had their what I call the Photoshop moment, right? The, fo- the Photoshop was one of those early desktop um, apps, so to speak, which kind mm-hmm. of defined what a desktop application should be, or or a, or a you know a WordPerfect, or the early days of Microsoft Word, where you know these applications just defined what a desktop publishing or a desktop content generation application should look like. Right. Uh, I don't think AI product has had that defining moment that this app or product or service, um, people will say, oh my God, this is how, you know, AI products and services should be built. Mm. Um, And again, yeah, there's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of experimentation in personal assistants, bots, um, things like Siri and Google Voice and our uh, our services in China doing ASR. Um, But I I don't think, I I don't get the sense that we have had that Photoshop moment yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So another interesting point you made early on was talking about uh, you talked about some of the deployment challenges of the neural networks that you work on. And we often we often overlook those like a lot of the conversation, I think, is around training and the training challenges just because it's so time intense. But you mentioned uh, some of the matrix multiplication challenges and other things. Um, you know, it's, what, what do you find to be, you know, how do you address those challenges and how do you, like, how do you more fully characterize them? Yeah, I think the deployment challenges are 
driven quite a lot by the um, the application themselves. Like as I said, um, any kind of um, service like um, speech or, for example, you're doing image tagging, for example, uh, in, in an app, for example, let's say an app lets you tag pictures of food or something. Uh, users care, like all these services are very user-facing and, um, you know, our attention span or what we expect from a service uh, has decreased over years. Like we really want everything to be very, very snappy, especially for things like speech, right? Um, speech is like our interface. Like when I talk to you, I expect an answer. I, I don't expect a silence. Like you, you're not going to speak to me after a minute after I finish speaking. So latency becomes really, really important. And then this is a challenge if the uh, the models are deployed in the data center because if you're using a mobile phone, then, then you have to take into account the time that takes for the request to come to your data center. And then you run the model, generate the output, whatever you want to give, give to the user, and then you send it back. Um, and for speech, it, it also depends on like, you know, you're doing, taking a, taking a, you know, a speech segment and converting into text. Like when do you start chopping up these speech segments? So to the user, it feels like it's a completely seamless kind of interaction. Um, I, ideally, you would want uh, these models to be pushed out to the edge, right? Uh, you, I would want my speech recognition engine, the ASR engine, uh, to be running on my phone. Um, it has not quite happened. So what people do is they take kind of a split model where a part of the model is running on the phone. Um, and the reason you can't run it, run it on these devices is because usually they're so compute intensive. I mean, I can actually um, take our model and run it on the, uh, on the iPhone or Android phone or whatever, a top of the line Android phone. But mm -hmm. I can bet you that you're the, I'll drain the battery in like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that won't be a very happy user, right? Right. Um, so people kind of split the model. So maybe a part of the model that does Hey Siri or Hey Alexa or whatever is resident on the device, and that only does that that bit. And then whatever you say after Hey Siri gets shipped up to the cloud and then transcribed there and then brought back. So those are the kind of. So I think more and more as the devices get more capable and the and the other. Um, the thing that people are also looking at is these neural networks are very over-parameterized. I mean, you know, typically a neural network would be, say, 100 million parameters. So after you train it, it turns out that you can actually um, shrink it down a lot. You can compress these models down to really small models without uh, losing a lot of accuracy. So people have been, and we are doing it as well, uh, taking a network and shrinking it down and seeing if we can deploy it to an edge device. Um, and going back to the matrix multiplies, um, in, in training, what you do is this thing called mini-batching, right? So in mini-batch, you take a bunch of training examples, shove it into like one big um, big matrix, because big matrices are um, easier to get very high performance on. Um, when you're doing speech recognition in the cloud for user-facing services, you can't really take a lot of utterances and shove it into this large matrix, because then you have to wait. Um, so, mm -hmm. and, you know, users don't like to wait. Um, so then you have this problem of then you're ending, ending up mul multiplying what I call skinny matrices, having one or two examples, which are not fast. So then you have to kind of write these special matrix multiply multiplication uh, routines that are not optimized for fat matrices or normal matrices, but for skinny matrices. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's doing it. I mean, Google has a team, I believe, that who does this kind of uh, you know, special coming up with uh, special libraries which are optimized for the skinny matrix multiplication. Redo the same. 
So yeah, the training side is 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 kind of a different world and has its its own kind of challenges that I think doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But it's also extremely important because uh, this is where you can I mean this is where kind of the rubber meets the road, right? This is where, you know, users start using your model to do something useful. Right. Right. Uh, the architecture architecture you were describing or at least the end goal of the architecture you were describing st- starts to sound a lot to me like you know almost like uh if you think about Hadoop land and mm-hmm. one of your first slides in your presentation was a picture of the Hadoop elephant right in Hadoop yeah. land there's kind of this you know migration uh from batch processing, MapReduce, to Spark uh, and streaming processing. It almost sounds like you're describing a similar migration that uh, many AI apps are taking or will need to take over time. Yeah, I think I haven't heard that characterization before, but that is exactly right. Um, Yeah, um, during during, increasingly during... Uh, when you deploy, you are you are you are it's some kind of streaming, and when you're streaming, you are very very latency sensitive, especially if there's a user that's using the service. Mm-hmm. And typically during training, you are batching stuff up into these things called mini batches to get much more computational efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, uh, one I think one of the first lessons I learned when I joined grad school is my advisor said. Uh, latency problems are really hard to solve. I mean, it's, if a problem has high latency uh, and users care about low latency, the, the, those problems typically end up taking a lot of engineering effort. It's harder um, to parallelize your way out of a latency problem. It is very hard. I mean, you, have to, you have to think about you know different algorithms and yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. or like different hardware. It, it, it's it's a mess. It's it, like if your problem is bandwidth challenged or flop challenged, you you can relate you can try you can solve it relatively easily than trying to solve something that is uh, latency challenged. And users care about latency. I mean, it is if we want stuff to work uh, instantly. Um, uh, we we have very little patience for something that is, especially for things like uh, ASR and, and mm-hmm. these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the techniques you described in your presentation was uh, the uh, graph transformation of some of these problems. Can you talk a little bit right. about the problem space there, the motivation, and what you found? Uh, yeah, so I think it was pretty forward-looking. In fact, after the talk, I met some people who said, uh, you guys are five years ahead of the field. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> so so what's really That's happening? That's sometimes though? a good place to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what we are seeing is um, you have, I mean, you can think of a neural network as a execution graph. I mean, execution graph has some operations that you're doing in the nodes, and then you're sending some data uh, across the edges. It's a very generic way or, or very flexible way of saying, uh, or what you're what you're doing. What we have found out is, um, as we develop these very very interesting architectures, um, they are becoming pretty hard to scale. So typically, what we would do is we come up with a really interesting architecture. We start training in TensorFlow or or any of the different frameworks because specifying these architectures is very easy thanks to the work that uh, all the different tool vendors have done. We have excellent tooling for specifying architectures. Mm-hmm. So we get up and running. We are training on, say, 1,000, 2,000 hours of data. And now we need to scale to what we call you know, our 
native data sets, which are tens of thousands of hours. Uh, this making this jump from where you're doing experimentation on you know a couple of thousand hours of data to tens of thousands of hours of data uh, is be- becomes very very hard because mm-hmm. once you have to take these kind of graphs, um, which TensorFlow calls graph dev, and you know various tool vendors have their own name, uh, into you know, as a bunch of cores. I mean, you can think of all these GPUs as a bunch of cores, and inside the GPU, there are also another bunch of cores. This mapping gets incredibly hard. So what we do is then a bunch of people, we get together and try to hand tune it, hand map it down to these kind of cores. Um, usually it takes us anywhere between eight months to a year where uh, we can take um, the networks that we want, that we are training on, say, a small you know, small amount of data, which is a couple of thousand hours of data, to like uh, massive amounts of data. Uh, through a lot of hand engineering, hand tooling, um, which ideally I want to shorten it. Like right. I, ideally I want to shorten it to two months where um, typically you're looking at say a WaveNet or a ByteNet or a tensional model, which are just very, very flexible, very interesting architectures, but also very complicated to, to scale. Um, so, so that's what I was trying to get at is like we really want need we really don't have this kind of intermediate layer which uh, takes a, a uh, graph specification from a framework be it TensorFlow or MXNet or or PyTorch or Torch mm-hmm. um, and takes this graph and then kind of efficiently maps it down to your uh, GPUs or CPUs or what have you. Um, and scale transparently. I mean, today you are doing an experiment on one GPU. Tomorrow you flip a switch. You're doing an experiment on 64 GPUs, and mm-hmm. and you and you see no performance hit whatsoever. Uh, we just don't have it, uh, and now it's a very extremely painful process. Hmm. Uh, and then this really um, kind of gets at productivity of a group. I mean, we do it because you know there's no other way. But ideally. Uh, it's kind of a wake-up call for the community, for the community to like, come together and kind of build this software tooling or the software uh, middle layer that's absent. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, in, in full generality, it's an intractable problem. So you have to like figure out what sort of restrictions you want to want to place, so you can uh, do you know you can kind of uh, do both things that you can get the flexibility of. Uh, looking at the networks that you want to look at and also be able to like uh, scale these networks out to the to the data set that you want to scale at and they're usually opposing goals so you have to like carefully figure out what compromises you you have to put in the system let's talk a little bit more about the the 8 months and what goes into that is it that it's a a computationally iterative uh approach to solving this problem, meaning you've got this model that, you know, after, you know, one computationally iterative, you know, cycle of, you know, training a model and coming up with a model that you think works, you then are having to, you know, run it at scale, you know, figure out where it breaks, tweak it. And then are you, are you remodeling, I guess, are you retraining uh, in that process or, are there other uh, is there other are there other steps taking place to get to a model that runs at scale? And now it's usually the same model. You just have to re-implement it. Um, 
you know, say you take an attentional model, for example, these are pretty complicated models. Mm -hmm. um, and typically what happens is um, you run out of memory. You, 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 um, because these models are large, there's so much intermediate computation and so much intermediate state um, that you have to save. Um, you make the models larger. I mean, when I say Got make it. the models large, larger means uh, the individual layer sizes changes. So the connectivity stays the same. Uh, mm -hmm. But the individual layer sizes say go from you know a, a, a dimension of say 256 to say I don't know uh, 1024, um, mm -hmm. and when you increase the dimension, stuff increases by a square, right? Because it's a matrix. Right. Right. So so now you are suddenly out of memory, and then if you're suddenly out of memory, um, you can't run on the GPU, uh, and then you have to like look at a, look at the the graph of this and figure out, you know, typically, as I said, every edge in the graph is something that stores memory. Uh, you need to figure out, okay, I need to collapse this graph. And collapsing this graph essentially means writing a new program mm -hmm. because you can think of the nodes as essentially small programs, uh, like a matrix multiply or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so then you have to start fusing these nodes in some interesting way or think about how do I partition this graph over two different GPUs? Because right now this entire graph doesn't fit on one GPU. So now I have to partition this graph over two GPUs. So once, as soon as you think of partitioning okay. a graph over two GPUs, it's like, okay, how do I communicate? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so all, all these, you know, problems start coming up. It's it's extremely handcrafted in that sense. Right. Uh, that, I understand. It sounds like you're starting with this, uh, you know, the, again, this model that you've constructed using these tools that uh, isn't necessarily designed for scale. And then yeah. you systematically have to, you know, if we were thinking about this in the context of traditional compute, you systematically are uh, denormalizing your database, uh, distributing out yeah. and yeah. rewriting everything in assembly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, at the end of the day, for some of the networks, we just have to rewrite an assembly because it, they're not fast enough. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, so it, it's a very like it's almost like an artisan chipping away at a problem. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and in some sense, I mean, as soon as you have an artisan chipping away at a problem, it doesn't scale, right? It, it right. it's like it, it slows you down. I mean, that's why we invented compilers because people were you know tired of writing assembly by hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that 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 layer doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about, you know, as we think about um, as we think about uh, uh, general AI and the the path to getting towards you know to to having in existence you know a, a totally generalized AI. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think we think about a lot of things, but I'm not sure that, you know, in that conversation, at least I've not heard it, you know, explicitly called out. Uh, in order to do that, this system is going to have to be on the cloud, in the cloud. It's going to have to be massive. It's going to have to be trained on massive amounts of data. Yep. Uh, you know, it's probably not yep. going to be, you know, well, there's certainly a lot of algorithm work that needs to be done and lots of other types of work that to be done, data, data management, et cetera. But, you know, there are huge systems problems, you know, fundamental systems problems yep. that, you know, we're so far from solving. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this was that's why I was trying to say it's kind of trying to like kind of as a wake up call or whatever. I think one of the problems also is uh, we as a research community have done a fairly bad job of having a massive amount of publicly available data set. The only big publicly available data set is ImageNet and the right. the architectures to do well on ImageNet are actually fairly simple. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we know how to run them fast, very fast, in fact. Uh, I mean, I would not be surprised if ImageNet-like networks get embedded in an ASIC and be available in your phone or your camera and whatnot. Right. But a lot of the uh, problems that we deal with in speech uh, generation and speech synthesis or speech uh, recognition um, in language understanding, there are no public data sets. I mean, there are no public data sets that are big. Um, so people do, I mean, look at the research that happens in, 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 in network architecture exploration. If you look at the papers that come out in ICLR or ICML and NIPS, they are all working mm-hmm. on really small data sets. So they mm-hmm. don't face the challenge of scale. And, I'm, and I don't blame them. It's not that they're doing it purposefully. There's just no data. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that's also, I think, uh, is a challenge that I didn't talk about in that talk itself because it wasn't the right thing. But uh, this, I feel, is a really big challenge that we don't really have good, large, publicly available data sets for stuff that's not ImageNet. Um, because if you are thinking about AGI or whatever, um, we need a lot of publicly available data um, where we can actually scale. Unless we come up with algorithms that will work at small scale, which people are working on that too, but we haven't made as much progress as we, you know, as we uh, mm-hmm. have in other fields. Mm-hmm. I've heard this, someone described this problem to me as the industry having overfitted on ImageNet and some of these yep. other data sets. I, uh, <laughs> I, I totally tell that. I mean, that I, I tell that to people, like whoever is willing to listen that, look, you're overfitting on ImageNet. I tell that to every vendor we work with. They came with mm. like every, like we work with a lot of different hardware vendors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they all come up with like all these results that, look, we are, XYZ fast on ImageNet and like we don't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't care. It's a solved problem. I mean, uh, ImageNet is solved. I mean, it just just it. I mean, as I said, it's it's solved enough to the point that I expect to see it in ASICs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so we are we're getting close to uh, the end of our hour, but I'd love to hear you um, talk through. Actually, I had one more question related to the stuff yeah, we were sure. talking about. So sure. um, all of these system things that we're describing, how's, what's the best way to ask this question? You, you have an HPC background, which uh, is, you know, I think increasingly rare in the, you know, the, in a world where people are coming up from kind of web-based architectures. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, And I don't hear a lot about that in uh, deep learning necessarily and, and machine learning. Can you talk about how uh, that kind of thinking has influenced what you've done and where you're directly pulling from HPC, it's it's been a while since I've uh, since I've been involved in the HPC community. But does it lead you, for example, to use like InfiniBand and some of the exotic HPC stuff, or how does it influence you? Oh yes, I mean InfiniBand is not exotic in our world. <laughs> 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 it's it's pretty standard. I mean, when we first started building um, stuff, um, we started using InfiniBand. So okay. <laughs> the, HPC, it, the HPC kind of thing is, uh, as I said, is efficiency and and speed of light is extremely important to us. So, as I said, the first thing we think about is how efficient we are in terms of the processor flops. So if the processor is, say, as I said, six teraflops or seven teraflops, how close to that number can we get over a period of time? I mean, it just doesn't have to be bursty. So if you say that, oh, I can reach seven teraflops, but I can only reach it for like, I don't know, two seconds while my whole application takes two hours, that's no good. 
Mm-hmm. So, how much can you sustain over um, the entirety of an application runtime? Right. Which, in as I said in our example, is in many weeks. So, that's I think the the driving kind of HPC thought is how efficient can I get? And when you yeah. think about efficiency, you tend to build systems that are what I call are tightly coupled, which means in a in a a loosely coupled system is kind of a web-style system, right? You have this right. you know, one U blades that are connected by probably a gigabit Ethernet or maybe 10 gig. I don't know. I think it's still gigabit. Um, uh, but we build like really fat nodes. Like each of our nodes is like eight GPUs in it because we want these computing mm-hmm. elements. If you think of a GPU as a computing element, we want them to be as close together as possible because we know that you know, there's a fundamental physical limit on how fast you can move electrons over a wire. So if you want to move stuff fast, you want the wire to be very close to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly with InfiniBand. So um, InfiniBand, we have like InfiniBand switches in our rack. So we don't okay. have many racks, um, but each of our rack is pushing like 30 kilowatt um, of, of power. And wow. then a t- typical, you know, data center rack in Google, um, Facebook or even us. I mean, in our web. I mean, we have huge data centers in China for web style workloads. Uh-huh. They are like at less than ten kilowatts. Right. So, so it's a very different kind of mindset, which is a mindset that okay, I need to push you know orders of exaflops. So mm-hmm. if I have to push orders of exaflops, I need to be maximally efficient on uh, on my system, and I have to build system that have very uh, small distances to transfer data, like really short wire distances. So you tend to build what I call fat nodes that are, are very closely connected uh, mm. to each other using um, in, usually InfiniBand or you know, Ethernet is also catching up. But there's also like a, I'm also telling somebody that I would like to see more research in interconnects because uh, low latency interconnect is becoming really important with deep learning. And you see um, research in that with um, not only from InfiniBand, from Mellanox, but also from NVLink, from uh, NVIDIA, and mm-hmm. then OmniPath from Intel. And I think uh, we will see more and more of these low-latency interconnects uh, for workloads like deep learning. Mm. Great, great. Uh, so so you tell me, uh, based on your time, do we have time to run through yeah, kind of yeah. the latest I mean, uh, in GPU? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, maybe we should start with, uh, you know, the at the highest level, the evolution that you've seen and how folks are applying GPUs to these types of workloads, why they're important, um, you know, frameworks, uh, QDNN, I, I can only assume is related to the, the CUDA stuff that you were working on. Like, how does all that stuff fit together? Um, so... It, in some sense, uh, you know, deep learning is a is a problem area that is is squarely in the comfort zone of the GPU because if you look at the fundamental operation in deep learning, uh, it is uh, mat- regular matrix matrix math, and if you mm-hmm. look at graphics, it is also regular matrix math, and it's smaller matrices, but but uh, but it's also matrix math. So if you have dense matrix algebra, um, which is what essentially deep learning is, almost every operation in deep learning is a dense matrix math. It's squarely in the comfort zone of the GPU. And that is why GPUs are doing so well in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then toolkits like QDNN is essentially taking uh, things like the special convolutions. I mean, a convolution is 
in some sense, a dense matrix math, which is what how Kudianen does it. Um, so what Kudianen is doing is taking these special kind of convolutions that can be in four dimensions um, that is used in deep learning and putting it in a library, which is exactly the right thing to do. Um, because they're different from the convolutions that's used in, say, traditional uh, vision or traditional uh, graphics or so. So these are special kind in that sense. Um, and then what Scudian is doing is also kind of moving up the stack. For example, now Scudian has um, a GRU implementation, for example, a batch norm implementation. So in some sense, I think Kudian is going to do a pivot and change its name because it mm-hmm. does it does a lot more than just um, con- convolutions and stuff that's used mm-hmm. in ImageNet. Because more and more they're putting in stuff um, that's used in uh, recurrent nets. And then you have these uh, frameworks like TensorFlow and PyTorch and um, MXNet and Tiano. Um, and many more, who, uh, there are probably 20-odd frameworks uh, that layer over uh, these frameworks like QDNN, like MKLDNN that I think Intel has. Um, and then what these frameworks are doing is lets you um, kind of very easily uh, specify this network architectures, like an image net or a wave net or a byte net or a tensional net or a recurrent net. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you can think of each one of the um, the nodes in these uh, networks as something, as a call into QDNN in some sense. Okay. Uh, uh, and they're all in Python because Python has kind of become the de facto um, kind of language in the AI world or the mm-hmm. DL world. So, so CUDA itself is the API for programming the GPUs, basically. Yeah, so CUDA is both. Uh, CUDA is a big thing. I mean, different people think of CUDA as different ways. Um, CUDA is also a language in some sense. Okay. Um, it, it's got a little bit of its own syntax. It's very much like C, C++ uh, okay. and a little bit more syntax. Um, so CUDA is this whole, like, you can... So you use that, and it also has a bunch of API calls mm-hmm. uh, that you call into the GPU. So it's both like a programming framework as API and also this language itself uh, for programming the GPUs. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then QDNN sits on top of that uh, to yeah. provide high-level uh, mm-hmm. primitives for programming deep neural nets. And then yep. the frameworks, uh, Taurus, Deano, TensorFlow, sit on top of that. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. And CUDNN is written, could be written as in CUDA, definitely written as in CUDA. You can also, I mean, for uh, reasons of speed, you can even write an assembly, which they might have done. But yeah, that's the right picture to have in mind. It's CUDA, CUDNN framework, yeah, going from bottom to top. Okay. And so where do you see the, where do you see things going on the hardware side? Um, you know, Intel is trying to uh, work on some things. Um, Google has their tensor processing unit. Um, yeah, how do you see all, how do you see all that stuff evolving? Yeah, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer because <laughs> the, future, the future is kind of unclear in some sense. I mean, the sense that uh, the network architectures are evolving so fast that it's mm-hmm. kind of hard for the processors to kind of keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, what has happened is, you know, everything is this nice matrix multiply thingy that works really well on GPUs. But we do have um, networks um, that are actually pretty hard to do on GPUs. For example, WaveNet is one such network. Um, so... I think for the the chip vendor, I mean, ideally you want 
both to like co-evolve, like the, the hardware architecture would evolve with the network architecture. But the problem is um, it's very easy for me to come up with a very interesting looking network um, using TensorFlow, but it's, all, it's very hard to build hardware. Uh, mm-hmm. Building hardware is this incredibly, um, you know, in resource intensive, money intensive uh, process. Um, so it's a little bit hard to see where the hardware is going to evolve. I think the way NVIDIA and Intel are approaching the problem is, okay, let's just make it fast for uh, matrices of some sizes. Um, and we have this benchmark out called Deep Bench, which tells what matrix sizes it should be for mm-hmm. some of uh, uh, our networks. And then Google has uh, developed TensorFlow, which it's not a lot of details out, but what I suspect it is, is more towards inference and doing very low power inference, but not so much for training Mm -hmm. uh, for some specific models. So you could, as I was saying, that as networks like GoogleNet and things like that mature, you'll probably see them burnt into ASIC and then shipped in a phone or a camera or wherever you're doing some kind of image or object uh, segmentation. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think people are kind of just hedging their bets and trying to see how the networks are going to mature. And it it kind of affects both ways because I won't make a network, I won't come up with a network that is not efficient on any processor that I can run on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you get what I mean. Right, right. (laughs) So you have no incentive to push the envelope uh, for the hardware folks and the hardware folks have no incentive to push the envelope because they don't have any networks to run on their stuff. Right. So like, uh, I wouldn't say no incentive, but I would say they're both looking at each other kind of warily. Right, right. right. Who's going <laughs> to who's wait. gonna dump the billions into this science project kind of yeah, thing? Exa- yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's an interesting cost, spot to be in. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to cost billions. I mean, let's not kid, kid ourselves. I mean, right. fab, you know, that that's what it costs to build. like Fabs hardware. and yeah, all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and one of the issues that comes up, uh, at least in, you know, Intel talking about, uh, Knightsbridge and their advanced processors that are trying to solve this problem, or at least, um, you know, cut off NVIDIA at the pass is the issue of floating point versus in eight. Like, can you kind of talk through what that's all about? Yeah, so reduced precision is this really interesting thing, and this is also why I feel the industry is optimizing towards Google Net. So what? <laughs> yeah, we have been trying to do reduced precision for two and a half years, and doing reduced precision, like which is what Intel is, instead of say Float32 for recurrent nets like speech, is incredibly hard. Uh, we it's have hard. Been, it is incredibly hard. So I thought, yeah, just to to jump in here, um, what I had envisioned this as a simplification of the chip that allows Intel, for example, to stuff more, uh, you know, to make a, a given silicon die able to do yeah. more math. I hadn't really thought of it as something that's harder. You're basically float 32 is your 32 bit floating point. Uh, oh, so, so, yeah, yeah. So what, when I say hard, I mean um, uh, div- uh, getting it. So if I say train a network in reduced precision, say float 16 or in data instead of float 32, ah, okay. um, that network will not perform in terms of accuracy as well as a float network trained in float 32. That's what I meant. Um, hmm. So if, if I have chips that, you know, can only do reduced precision, then it doesn't help me at all because my models don't perform well. And why is that? I was under the impression that the reason why N8 was 
great, where using integers was great, was because the networks themselves don't inherently take advantage of floating point. Is that, I guess that doesn't really uh, make that, sense, right? That only makes sense in the Google net world. <laughs> this <laughs> and, is why. And thus. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, it does not, so far, has made sense in, in recurrent nets. Um, we may be seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, very early days. Uh, recurrent nets for speech, I feel, are some of the hardest networks you can train. Uh, they're very, mm. very hard to train. Uh, in float 32, we have figured out quite well, but we have been trying for at least two and a half years to do one reduced position, um, and we have not been able to do it. And when I say have not been able to do it, I, what I mean is the models we train using reduced position is not as good as the models we train using float 32. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's not as good, I'm not going to deploy. I mean, uh, right, right. <laughs> Um, so that's that's I think reduced precision is another case of the industry um, optimizing on Google Net, mm. um, which which may be fine because they might have customers uh, all they want is object detection, say automated driving, for example, right. object detection, object segmentation. So they have a market where they can sell these chips into, um, but. Uh, it's not appropriate for all neural nets, especially mm -hmm. not recurrent neural nets yet. I mean, we might be able to figure out how to do it, but we are, we are not there yet. And so I, I can make sure I understand um, when we're talking about training a network in Float32 versus N8, is the issue or is the issue that uh, between the neurons in our neural network, we've got you know, these weights and the weights are, you know, multiplied by states to give us outputs. Is it that the weights are integers versus floats and or the states yeah. are integers versus floats? So all that. So, and yeah, in so, Google so that, like, I mean, you, you have touched upon a very interesting thing. Like there are many things in the neural net that you can choose to keep in low precision? Do you want to keep the weights in low precision? Do you want to keep the intermediate state that you generate in low precision? Do you want to keep both in low precision? Uh -huh. uh, do you want to keep only the gradients in low precision? I mean, there are mm -hmm. many design choices you can make. Um, and there are all kinds of funny, interesting, unexplainable results depending on what you choose to do uh, mm. when we train these networks for speech. Uh, typically, uh, at the end of the training process, you spit out a model, which is basically the weights. Mm -hmm. um, so typically, you just want the weights to be um, in low precision. But uh, in recurrent nets, uh, the convergence is extremely sensitive because you're doing this serial operation through time. Right. Uh, this, is, this is extremely sensitive load of floating point error um, to the point that if we take an algorithm and move from CPU to GPU, because floating point math is floating point addition uh, is not associated, which means the sequence in which you do the addition, mm -hmm. if, if it's different, you'll get a different number. Um, so say uh, you move an algorithm from CPU to GPU, you will get a slightly different result. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can make or break a model. And that has mm -hmm. happened with us quite a few times. Wow. Um, yeah, so that, that space is, I, I think, it, it's a... It's it's a field of research. Like, how do we think of floating point in this new world of uh, training neural nets? Mm -hmm. um, and I wish people who deal with this kind of stuff, like uh, the floating point committee or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, would, would research this more. And in terms of the the architectures, the GPUs are more optimized for the lower precision. 
but they also do um, they're, float. They're getting or... there. I mean, yeah, yeah. So typically, GPUs have only done float because that's what games and games don't need anything better or more than float. Ah, okay. And then, then GPUs started getting used in oil and gas, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, oil and gas needs doubles uh, for the different partial differential equations they're solving. Mm -hmm. And then comes along deep learning. And deep learning is saying that I can do with float and for things like Google Net, I can get away with Int 8 or Float 16. Uh, So the GPUs are now starting to support Float 16 as well, natively. Mm -hmm. Um, So so, so now the GPU vendors have to kind of target three different markets. One which uses float, another which uses double, another a part of the market (laughs) that uses... <laughs> wow. That is just float 16 <laughs> or in date. Wow. Great. Uh, so, this has been super interesting. Uh, before we go, anything, um, you know, what are you excited about? Anything that you're working on or anything that any asks for the community, the industry? Uh, how would you like to close us out? Um, I, I am personally interested a lot in, in speech synthesis. Uh, I think, the, um, you know, you can, to build really natural interfaces, you need um, speech that sounds natural. Um, uh, we are far from there. Like, that's why you have this robotic voice that talks to you from various devices. I think there's a lot of research to be done on very natural sounding um, speech from all these devices that you interact with voice. Voice. Mm-hmm. And and when going far out, I mean, I would really like to see like you know conversation being a first class UI element with all the devices that we use. Right. Because as I said, conversation is our UI. Um, that'll be uh, incredibly nice if we see it in say the next five years or so. It's mm-hmm. challenging. It's going to be very challenging. Um, so that's kind of my my dream in some sense. <laughs> and and. In the shorter term, of course, the systems um, goals that I talked about, like this kind of a middleware or middle ground where we take these graph transformations. It's starting to happen a little bit. TensorFlow has this thing called the XLA, uh, which is really uh, kind of the first step in that direction. The XLA mm-hmm. compiler that came out with the TensorFlow 1 release that was last week, I think. Yep. Um, so, the uh, yeah, so people are starting to take note. And hopefully we are not like five years ahead of it. Think <laughs> maybe things will get solved in the next couple of years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Well, Shubo, uh, how can folks find you online? How can they follow the work that you're doing? Um, so the work that I do at Baidu, we have a website, research.baidu.com, where, um, let me see if I have the URL right. Um, uh, and a lot of the work is there. Um, I'm you know, I'm very easily findable on LinkedIn, Shubho Sengupta, S-H-U-B-H-O and S-E-N-G-U-P-T-A. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm happy for people to get in touch with me, ask me questions, whatever. I'd be happy to elaborate. And thank you for your thank you for your time and this platform. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join uh, join in the show, and I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Shubo for an amazing conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. Once again, thanks so much for listening and for your continued support. Please remember that we want to hear from you. You can comment on the show via the show notes page, via the at AI Twitter handle, or my own at Sam Charrington handle, via our new Facebook and YouTube pages, or just good old-fashioned email to sam at TwimmelAI.com. Your likes and subscriptions really help support the show, so keep them coming. 
The notes for this show will be up on twimlai.com slash talk slash 14, where you'll find links to Shubo and the various resources mentioned in the show. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.